welcome back to Closer Mentality. I'm your host, Julia Mellet. Today's episode welcomes Steve Fisher. Fisher's childhood love of skateboarding led him to eventually spend 11 years on the U.S. snowboarding team. The St. Louis Park, Minnesota native began his love affair with winter sports in the years before snowboarding equipment was kid-sized. And then from skateboarding, at six years old, I started to find snowboarding. I think my parents got me a Transworld snowboarding magazine and, um, you know, when I was six or seven years old, so that was probably in like 85, 86 or something like that, and um, 87 maybe, and um, I just, I loved the visuals from that magazine, and it was something that I really, really gravitated towards and wanted to do, and um, at the time, they didn't make snowboarding equipment small enough for children, so I bit the bullet for a couple of years and skied when I was six and seven, and then when I was seven, eight, uh, it was when Moro Snowboards started making stuff for kids, and that's how I got into it. Fisher's eight-year-old self could have never imagined where the sport would take him. It really wasn't a product of, you know, me focusing and honing in, thinking that I would become a professional one day by any means. It was always um, just what I liked doing and... Um, you know, like I said, again, you know, I, I played plenty of team sports. Soccer was another team sport that I played growing up from elementary school all the way into high school. And, um, you know, so it, it wasn't a sense that like, I preferred individual sports more to team sports or anything like that. It was just that snowboarding was one that, um, you know, for me, I quickly saw the results in my own ability level from the time that I was, I don't know, 10, 11 to where, um, you know, the, the jumps in progression for me from, we'll say like 13 to 17 were pretty drastic. Those dramatic jumps in skill cleared the pathway for Fisher to go pro in 2002 with his first sponsorship backing, Head Skis and Snowboards. Yeah, like I said, I mean, it was really kind of a, all the stars aligned and it, you know, in snowboarding, it really isn't that way. It's not at all like traditional sports where, um, you know, an organization like U.S. Snowboarding has you go pro or anything like that. I mean, I, I was essentially competing at a professional level when I was 17 years old in uh, Grand Prix events, which is the USSA sanctioned event series in the United States. There was another series back then called the AST, the American Snowboard Tour, and, you know, was doing World Cups internationally by the time I was 17 and 18 years old. Um, but it wasn't the sense that, um, you know, U.S. snowboarding asked me to be a part of the organization as a pro member of their team, but more so that in the individual sports, the individual sponsors are the ones that kind of dictate who goes pro or not, or when you go pro or anything like that. So at the time I was with a company called Ice Age Snowboards um, throughout high school. They no longer exist or anything like that, but um, it was a company that was, uh, you know, in the late 90s to, or I guess it would be like the 90s, the entire decade, they tried to make their way as a, you know, snowboard company and had a bunch of pros on the team and I was an amateur um, with a very small, you know, travel budget salary or whatever. So that's kind of what classified me as professional was that I was getting paid by a company um, to do what I was doing at a, you know, young age. After the partnership with Head, the U.S. snowboard team began to take notice and ask Fisher to join its A-team. 
From there, the sponsors began reaching out. I would say it's about 80 to 90% the brands seeking out talent. Um, for me, when I was younger, I was always a super shy person. So I, I never really had a lot of, you know, networking skills as a teenager to, to really understand or know how to approach brands in a way that was like a, hey, sponsor me kind of thing. But um, as I said, I'd, I'd been on the content circuit since I was single digits old um, and then grew up with the whole progression of it all and started competing inter internationally and professionally at 16, 17 years old. And, um, you know, I, I remember pretty vividly, it was one of those events that uh, the marketing manager, team manager of Smith Optics approached me and, you know, gave me his card after my run. I think I got like 10th or 9th or something like that when I was 16 here in Breckenridge, Colorado, actually. And, you know, he said, hey, man, I've been watching you for a long time. Give me a call. We'd love to help you, you know, work something out. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I don't even know what to do. Um, so I, I waited, you know, a handful of days after the event and I sent the guy an email and before you know it, it was kind of, again, you know, on a, on a amateur kind of sponsorship thing with Smith Optics. I had my board sponsor and then um, US snowboard team in the, in the background as well. And then, you know, once, once things kind of evolve with a couple of companies, especially brands that are very popular like Smith Optics and, um, you know, head snowboards wasn't overly popular with snowboarding at the time, but they were making a big push. And, you know, so other companies noticed and um, it just kind of snowballed from there. And then I eventually hired um, or started working with a, a sports agent who helped me to kind of navigate the management of all that stuff. Although the sponsors were backing him and he had the weight of U.S. snowboards surrounding his performances, Fisher also saw all of the media attention unfairly swelling around only two or three professional snowboarders. Honestly, I think it's, uh, I think it's corporate and, and sponsor support. I think that the, the dollar volume that has kind of moved away from supporting snowboarding as a, as a sport really has shifted pretty drastically. Um, you know, like I said, when in the 90s and most of the thousands up to 2010, you know, there was a huge influx of dollars from all kinds of companies, all kinds of corporate sponsorships. You know, I mean, you look at Sean White won the Olympics in 2006 and he got a Hewlett Packard deal. He got um, a deal with Target and all those kinds of things. And really, he was the only one who had the sponsorship level on that level of like true big timer professional athlete kind of Serena Williams Roger Federer, LeBron James type of sponsorship level. Nobody else was afforded any of that stuff. Um, so you had him all the way up here and then you had everybody else kind of scraping by. And I, I use that very loosely because it was lucrative for a handful of, of athletes for a long time, but just in a very different way. Um, and I think that is the hard part with individual sports is that people don't know how to kind of harness it or market it. and turn it into, you know, for lack of a better analogy, something like a NASCAR that you can follow and track. And, you know, you have your favorite athletes or drivers, what have you. And, you know, it's something that's constantly in the media. Snowboarding for the longest time, you know, they tried to put it on TV for a long time, but then it disappears in the summer. 
and then people forget about it. Same with like World Cup skiing, you know, people follow Lindsey Vaughn and Michaela Schifrin, but they don't know any of the other athletes, you know? So it's a, a really steep cutoff as far as the sport goes with uh, support. During the summer months in the States, Fisher and his teammates would spend time in South America, chasing snow where they could find it. Our contest schedule back years years ago, you know, when I was, when I was riding, we would um, basically start the year uh, down in the Southern Hemisphere, obviously during our kind of summer months, and there was a, usually a contest in uh, Chile. Uh, and then New Zealand would kind of be back to back. There would be a couple of World Cups down there in the summertime. And then early fall, we would head out to um, Switzerland, typically, uh, for the high glacier stuff there for early season World Cups. And, you know, so it, there really is kind of a constant circuit that just doesn't get the traction or the, you know, the television, the media time that, um, you know, say the NBA gets, uh, like covers summer league, covers the whole season of NBA, and then it covers the Olympics and, you know, basketball stuff. So like, there's just constant bombardment of these athletes and the sport to where, you know, people who participate in snowboarding love it but I don't think that they necessarily always are in tune freestyle wise, you know, like getting on a mountain and the freestyle aspect of snowboarding is are two very different things, you know, and um, pure enjoyment, getting out on a mountain and riding powder and riding mountain stuff is, you know, a totally different feeling than half pipe doing double corks or 1080s, back to back 1080s, whatever it is. So it's, it's hard to translate. And I think that, um, you know, only in recent history, they started covering on TV much, much better with, you know, Todd Richards as an analyst explaining how difficult these things are to people who don't understand. You know, I, I, I just think it's a it's an access thing. Fisher says that with increased media attention brought to those summer competitions, which are nearly never covered by large sports media conglomerates, athletes other than Sean White would have had more of a chance to become household names. We grew up snowboarding together even in the amateur stuff and you know we've always been neck and neck I mean another guy Danny Cass was somebody who we grew up with that uh he and I are the same age JJ Thomas is another athlete Kira Dillon is another you know wildly talented legend snowboarder who um you know and we all pushed each other through a period of 12 to 15 years and you know the things that the media gets about Sean is that he's this Tony Hawk iconic person, but even in skateboarding, you know, there's 15 other guys that would routinely and constantly beat each other every other week. And that's kind of how snowboarding was at the time. I mean, Mason Aguirre was another kid um, who was a few years younger than I, but uh, wildly talented, you know, again, kind of one of the legends of, of half pipe snowboarding, Andy Finch, Tommy Shasheen, like, the list goes on and on and you know we every single week we're just pushing pushing beating beating and you know sean would win a handful and then i would win a handful danny cass would win a handful abram teeter would win one here and there and um you know that's that's how it went and i think that it's kind of sad that the media didn't actually portray the reality of like how it all shook out and it was just kind of the sean show which is fine you know and again he was the biggest and is the biggest snowboarder probably of all time but um you know that that's not exactly how it actually went down in 2004 
as Fisher was coming off a bronze medal in the 2003 FIS Snowboarding World Championships and first place at the Vans Triple Crown. The Winter X Games were suddenly no longer a dream. He won the 2004 Winter X Games Halfpipe Championship, securing his name atop the best in the world. Yeah, it's really funny. I, I had a friend in high school when I started kind of doing the, um, the professional level events and stuff. I think it was the summer after we graduated high school and had learned some new tricks and was really feeling super confident about like my snowboarding as a whole. And he, he asked me, he was somebody who did not snowboard, doesn't know snowboarding very well or anything like that, but is a traditional sports guy and asked me if I ever thought I would, you know, win the X games. And at that point I'd never been to the X games. So I was like, God, I, I don't know, man. Like I, that would be a dream of mine. It would be great. I don't know, you know, and that's kind of how I, took things I think throughout my whole career was never like, I am going to do this. I'm going to be here. You know, um, this is my goal, even though it was a goal of mine to put it on that pedestal because, um, again, I, I feel like it just kind of naturally was something that I was driven towards and it always seemed to kind of not necessarily go my way, but, lend itself to, to making it part of my reality. He was truly thriving, but it wasn't as easy to succeed on that stage and the podiums leading up to it as it looks. Most of it was centered around the fun and the overall feeling you get from doing what we do. And that was pure happiness. Um, you throw in all the external stuff and that's where things start to get a little weird with pleasing your sponsors, having, you know, putting yourself pressure on to perform every event, every week, all the time of the year, having to go out and be the cool guy out at the bar or whatever it is. So like, there's all these external things that are, you know, kind of pushing down on you. But then the best times that I always had were always kind of the static um, ambient kind of, just mentality where everything more or less either went white or black or whatever you want to call it and you're just doing what you love and that's where things seemed to work out the best for me was not having any of the external cares around me and being able to just be in the moment and you know now meditation but back you know 15 plus years ago, it was just like trying to figure out how to calm yourself and um, be up at the start gate and have the TVs on you and all, all that kind of stuff and being able to kind of weed out the BS. And, um, you know, that, that took a very long time to kind of figure out. And when I was young, I, I will never forget the first finals that I made at uh, the professional level. Uh, which coincidentally was where the Smith guy gave me his card or, and um, I went to drop in for my first finals run and I fell dropping in because I was so nervous, so excited and like, you know, just wanted to do well. And, um, you know, some of the guys who were older than me at the time and perennial podium finishers and guys that I looked up to like Rob Kingwell, uh, Seth Westcott was one of them. Ricky Bauer was another one who ended up being a coach of mine for years. And, you know, they all kind of knew that I was a lone wolf at, at the top of the half pipe and, you know, knew everybody, but wasn't like associated with a team yet or anything like that. And, um, 
really just kind of were like, hey, you know, you you did the hard work. You you made it to the finals, man. Like, chill out, relax, and just do whatever you got to do to have fun. Because, yeah, you know, like, and they really, like, that was the probably biggest help and advice I've ever gotten in my career. Funny thing that it, it's very difficult, again, to kind of chat about the the stresses and pressures of, of athletes to perform. And we are our own worst enemies. And, you know, if it's not perfect for us, then we are kind of in a little mini depression for a week or two weeks or three weeks until you can kind of get out of it. So it's this never ending cycle of, you know, yes, I won, this is great. And then like the next week, oh, can't believe I got fit. Like, man, you know, like I was riding really well. I don't know what happened. What the hell, you know? And you're just like constantly overanalyzing everything that you do. And it just, yeah, it's very, very difficult. In 2004, as Fisher became more well-renowned on the halfpipe, the podiums quickly reinforced that. His mind, though, was infrequently focusing and dwelling on the actual trainings and competitions. 2004 was like a huge breakout year for me where um, I went from, you know, maybe hitting one or two podiums a year to like almost hitting them all, like every single one that entire year. Um, and then the following year, I remember feeling really, really good and going into X Games and then just not being able to land a run and finishing dead last. And then, you know, it, it kind of fell into the quicksand after that of like, oh man, like being really hard on myself and just not being able to perform really the rest of the year until the spring, I think it was US Open, I finally got like a second or second place at US Open at the end of the year. But then, you know, just went and worked super hard the following year and back at it and back, you know, kind of on the winning streak and podium streak. And, you know, so it's, it's very cyclical and it's, you know, it, you can train as much as you want and you can be out there as long as you want. And it doesn't matter, you know, I mean, it, it's pretty interesting how, you know, I found a lot of times if I had less practice, I would actually do better because I was kind of like, I don't care, you know, or whatever it is. And um, the more and more that I ground out and grind through training and try to get more runs, more laps, more hiking, more, more, whatever, um, it would kind of have a reverse effect on me. I started training as if everything were an event where I would go up, I would take like two or three runs really fast, try to land everything first time perfectly. And then I would stop for about an hour, uh, kind of more or less simulating how an event would go because there's a, you know, uh, typically in the morning, it's from uh, 7 a.m. to like 8.30 a.m. is pre-finals or pre-event training. And you get like two or three runs at most and then you wait an hour until your run is up and then you get a run and then you wait another hour until your second run is up and that's it that's qualifying um so that's more or less how i started to figure out training was i'm gonna do three runs right off the bat first thing in the morning you know i know this half pipe like the back of my hand so i'm just gonna do it and would do two or three runs like i said you know first run without any practice um, contest level runs. And then I would sit for an hour and then I would go back, I would do one run and then I would sit for an hour and then I go back and do one run. And then that was it. And then I'd be on with my day. 
At the 2007 Winter X Games in Aspen, Colorado, Fisher came out swinging. He won gold in the superpipe, unseating Sean White by a full point, 92-91, to thus reinforcing his position at the top. That one was really special. So again, you know, as athletes, we really have a hard time of getting out of our own heads. Uh, 2006, I was riding uh, really well into the year, but uh, the whole Olympic thing really was a drain on my mental state because it was something that I wanted. And I think I put a lot of pressure on myself to make that team. I'd been with US snowboarding for four years now and um, all my sponsors and everything. And obviously the Olympics is the biggest TV show in the world. So <laughs> um, that was something that I really wanted. I knew I was right there for, I mean, I was perennial kind of top three, top five athlete for the last three, four years at that point and knew it was, you know, kind of right there for the taking. And, um, you know, it, it was just one of those things where I could never land a run because I was overthinking. Um, 2007 happened and the pressure came off and I had fun again and was just kind of, again, you know, kind of like two, 2004 was on a, a complete tear. Um, just the amplitude and my my riding ability was like this much higher than everybody else's at that year and it just kind of happened and it was one of those things that was um you know sean i think had won every single event from 2005 till that moment so that one was pretty special as he looked back on his experience during the early 2000s Fisher realized that every moment he spent wrapped up in the confines of snowboarding was a moment well spent. Yeah, yeah. There, I mean, there were a lot of those moments for sure. And, you know, it kind of goes back to, um, you know, learning responsibility as a young adult and learning um, a lot of how the world works and, you know, just kind of the global travel thing, the international friends and networking that we were able to do, um, seeing places all over the world that a lot of people are not as fortunate to be able to get to see and, and experience and all that sort of stuff is, you know, I, I look at the whole experience and it was in, in its entirety, without a doubt, my best life. After 11 sweet years representing the snowboarding industry and the U.S. ski and snowboard team, Fisher began to see his competitive attitude shifting. He says that he never factored in how finite his career would be until the very last months. Uh, really at the very end, um, you know, for me being, I think it was 28 at the time, 29 maybe, um, knowing full well that half-pipe competition was not going to be a long-term play for me anymore. You know, I probably wasn't going to get into the 2014 Olympics or anything like that, just because a, when you get into your thirties, you start to think a lot more about what you're doing and the consequences. And I had come off of a handful of injuries. I had had a, a couple of friends have catastrophic injuries that ended careers. And, you know, a lot was happening in kind of that vein of snowboarding where you know somebody like Kevin Pierce who was a phenomenal again you know kind of an all-time great 
legendary half pipe snowboarder um, have a traumatic brain injury from a snowboard accident. And um, another friend of mine, uh, Gretchen Blyler had a, a accident that ended her career. And, um, you know, it just kind of got, got heavy. And when, again, you're, you know, in your upper twenties rather than your lower twenties, you start to think, Oh shit, the, that very likely could have happened to me, you know, like I could have a, a mistake and things really could go very, very wrong. And I could end up in a wheelchair. I could end up whatever. Um, and it was those kinds of thoughts that really started creeping in the back of the mind that never, <laughs> never really left. I mean, I'm still, again, you know, snowboarding, just not on that level. I'm mountain biking a ton. I'm hiking, trail running, all sorts of mountain climbing and stuff, but it's just different when you add that element of uncertainty. It's not that that didn't happen when you're younger. It's just when you're younger, your brain isn't as developed, obviously, as when you're in your later 20s to where you don't necessarily analyze or, you know, think about the the after effects. You, you know, when you're in your lower 20s, you just kind of assume like, well, I'm, I'm better than that. That's not going to happen to me. You know, like I know what I'm doing. I'm blah, 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 whatever you want to call it. And, um, you know, there, there becomes a, a period, I think, I swear, I think it's like 27 or 28, you start to kind of come back down to reality and think like, oh, maybe I can't do anything and everything that I'm cooking up in my head. The finite nature of his relationship with competitive snowboarding came with a screeching eye-opener after Fisher missed qualifying for his second Olympics. I've uh, talked about this on a couple other podcasts, but uh, it ended very abruptly and um, very shockingly for me. Like I said, it was coming off of uh, just not making another, the third time or the second time not making Olympics. And all of my uh, sponsor contracts were kind of lined up simultaneously. So um, for me going into the 2011 season, I was, a, you know, pro snowboarder still on the contest circuit, trying to get back into the podium atmosphere and, and um, be a professional snowboarder. And then all, every single one of my sponsors by December, um, going into that year called me and were like, well, we're done. You know, we're, or, I'm sorry, it was 2010 going into 2011. You know, we don't feel like you're the one that we want to support anymore. We're going to, you know, do a different direction, what have you, what have you. And all the while I was trying to figure out like, how can I pivot from a career of half pipe contest into kind of a more, you know, film and editorial based kind of professional snowboard career like many have done before and you know everybody just kind of quit on me and before you know it I was jobless not homeless or anything but uh, jobless and trying to figure out how to pivot out of snowboarding and into a different career um, from that I uh, started working for an advertising agency out of panic, like not knowing where to start, who to connect with or anything. And ultimately being, you know, super embarrassed about how it all ended and not really feeling overly confident to kind of reach out to a lot of snowboarding contacts that I had had. Um, 
tried to go a completely different direction and try something wildly different and very new and landed a gig uh, with a advertising agency down in Denver. And that lasted for about two years. And then from that, uh, I was contracted by a glove company in the snow sports industry to help them uh, create a new brand, new technology, a new marketing program and everything. I did that for two years and then they pulled the plug on that. Uh, and then I got my real estate license and that's what I'm doing now. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was very cold, you know, even us snowboarding, somebody who I'd been with for a decade was just kind of like, well, thanks. You know, you no longer on the team. Um, and that was that. And, uh, yeah, so I, I didn't really get a lot of help or anybody kind of extending any sort of support whatsoever. I was really more or less out on my own and just kind of had to navigate those waters by myself. I would say there are still a lot of positive feelings from, you know, time and experiences and connections and everything that I made, but yeah, there's definitely, um, you know, a feeling of resentment a little bit towards just kind of the the ending of the experience and that like I said before you know it's something that I've been involved with and a part of for more than 20 years of my life I've you know feel like I've, I've really been a, a solid advocate and positive uh role model in the uh sport and everything and you know it was really really difficult the way that it ended um and I think a lot of athletes do experience that and I think that there's a lot of lingering kind of long-term damage uh in the mental sphere from a lot of the the way that these things end you know i talked to a lot of people that were in my generation that kind of had similar experiences as me where it, the carpet was ripped right out from under them and that was that um a handful of people have pivoted and figured out you know next steps of their career or seamlessly transitioned into other stuff but then there's other people who really don't you know and they get kind of stuck and hung up and really kind of reeling and trying to figure out how to move on either from snowboarding or sport or whatever or don't <laughs> um which is ultimately really sad to see fisher now lives in breckenridge colorado a quintessential ski and snowboard town although he still snowboards on the side his life no longer revolves around x games gold medals and world travel we grew up through it. I, I've been in the sport since I was eight years old, so 20 years, you know, and um, of course, you know, everything, you get a little burnt out, you get a little drained from it, and, you know, you, you figure out ways to either reinvent or, you know, kind of push past those, those issues, and like I said, you know, today I snowboard almost every week, uh, at least both weekends, days or whatever or sometimes during the week if schedule allows but uh you know it uh like i said it's it's just interesting watching the trajectory of the sport from when i got involved to where it is now and interested to kind of see where it, where it goes over the next 10 to 20 years that's the end of episode 27 of closer mentality as always i'm your host julia mellet if you're interested in steve's story give him a follow on twitter at stephen h fisher and Instagram at Steve Fisher Mountain Homes. If you want to stay in the loop on upcoming episodes and full interviews with all of my guests, give at Closer Mental a follow on Instagram and Twitter, and subscribe to Closer Mentality Uncensored on YouTube. If you want to share your story, 
or you know someone who would be perfect for this podcast, send me a DM on Instagram. I'd love to chat. Tune in next episode when Andy Harris comes on to talk about visualization in youth sport and the transition of mental skills throughout the sport progression. See you next week. Thank you.